If you're taking notes this morning, uh, then this sermon is entitled The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. Uh, you'll know that if, you've, uh, if you're planning a trip overseas at the moment, uh, there's no such thing as a great exchange rate at the moment because the pound is, is doing terribly. Uh, but if you turn to Jesus, you will definitely get the best exchange of your life that you could possibly imagine. So we're going to um, mine that truth uh, now. Sister, would you like a bottle of water? She's got one, okay. Praise God. God bless you. I'm only glad that I'm not coughing as bad as you are right now. Because uh, <coughs> in, the, in the wee hours of the night, it's not that comfortable. Let's put it that way. As we've progressed uh, through the opening chapters of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, it's been unsettling to discover uh, or perhaps to be reminded at quite the extent of human depravity. How far into sin we have fallen. It has come as perhaps an even greater shock to learn that there is nothing that even the most moralistic or religious person can do to turn it around. In judgmentalism, all we do is turn the tables upon ourselves. Ourselves who cannot do any good of salvific significance. In other words, we cannot save ourselves. God has made us in such a way that we need him. And what a joy it is, if you know him, uh, to be in that relationship with him. So what can we do? The next section of scripture that we're going to look at today, as Tim Keller says, uh, reveals the brilliant sparkling diamond of the gospel, which is then placed on top of the dark cloth of human sinfulness. That dark cloth of human sinfulness has been laid out for us over the last several weeks as we've gone through Romans. And now what happens is the beautiful, pristine diamond, sparkling in all its splendour, the gospel is then laid on top of that cloth. The contrast between the all-encompassing hopelessness of the sinful human condition, our condition, and the free gift of Christ's perfect righteousness, credited to us through faith. A faith which we similarly receive from our loving Heavenly Father. You see how salvation is nothing to do with us? The faith that brings it to us is a gift. That salvation is the gift of Christ to us by his blood. What a wonderful God we come to know. As Paul declared back in chapter 1, a gloriously powerful gospel grants salvation for everyone who believes. First to the Jew, and to the Greek. The Greek is, of course, everyone else. If you're not a Jew, then you're a Greek. You're a Gentile. You're one of the other nations. The important things to grasp is the centrality of Jesus. He is the key. It is belief in him and his atoning work at the cross which grants justification to sinners like you and me. Contrary to the popular message 
on the street of multiple paths to heaven. You know, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Contrary to that message, there is but one Jesus. And his path was one of pain and suffering as he absorbed the full wrath of God against the sin of every one of his people. Are you one who believes in him? Because in him alone, the great justifier, the righteousness of God is revealed. Let's read from Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. (coughs) But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. May God bless his word to us this day. If you're taking notes, um, I've given you the title, The Great Exchange. And uh, I've got three uh, points. There's actually three S's. Firstly, our shortfall. Okay. Our shortfall. Secondly, the all-sufficient saviour. And thirdly, his new statutes. Okay. Our shortfall, the all-sufficient Saviour, and his new statutes. Okay. Sometimes we hear, the stat, I'll explain briefly, statute, just in case you don't know. We hear of the statute book, don't we, sometimes, from time to time, when we see Parliament on TV or the government talking. Uh, a statute is simply a law. Okay. So where we hear statute, read law or commandment. So Christ's new laws, his new statutes. Firstly, our shortfall. I hope we've learned by now as we've gone through Romans that the law, the purpose of the law is to reveal the problem of the human heart. 
And this revelation, this understanding of the problem of the human heart would be terrible if there had been no revelation of God's goodness and his desire to save his people. The law of God is not the problem. Our inclination to sin is. And left to our own devices, it is inescapable. As Paul has taken great lengths to explain, every kind of human being, whether a member of God's chosen nation, the Jews, or anyone else, Gentiles, no matter the degree of descent into sin, we have all chosen to indulge ourselves and seek our own comfort and glory. The Jews distorted the true faith, which as Paul testifies in these verses, was meant to reveal the loving kindness of God towards hopelessly sinful people. Paul says here in verse 21, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They bear witness to the righteousness of God. Right? Uh, you know, they weren't wait, waiting for millennia until Jesus showed up to have any inclination or understanding of God's righteousness. God had revealed it, his righteousness, in delivering his people from generation to generation through all kinds of situations. <clears throat> the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. Specifically, that God would make a way for his covenant promises to be fulfilled. According to Abraham on Mount Moriah, the sacrifice would be provided. <clears throat> Verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our shortfall, okay? Each and every one of us. And isn't this so true? Our country and much of the world at present is in economic turmoil due to the unwise fiscal policies and shortcuts of years of governments trying to find uh, uh, a quick way to, to wealth generation. Why? Because humankind desires a life of luxurious ease. There are budget deficits as far as the eye can see. Such a financial shortfall that the time of reckoning has arrived. And no matter how many chancellors or prime ministers come and go, the basic problem remains. No matter what your party affiliation. If they're a secular party, they're never going to deal with the big issue. The elephant in the room. The problem that we can't budge. Friends, only by coming to our senses as a nation, but crucially as individuals, as Paul explains in his wondrous letter to the church at Rome, the melting pot of the empire. And London is so much like Rome used to be. People from all over the known world are all there trying to survive. And if they could, make a name for themselves. So many venturing out to find their fortunes in a precarious and risky world. One in which the delights are all too fleeting. No. To be saved, each one of us must come to faith in Jesus. 
Why do we place our hope in material things? Creature comforts. Why do we entertain notions that this confusion and distress will all just blow over if we keep our heads down and keep doing the right things long enough? It's like a little boy desperately digging deeper ramparts on his sandcastle at the beach with every wave getting higher and higher until the inevitable happens and the castle must be abandoned. And so have you realised your shortfall? You know, there have been many times in my life when the Lord has shown me my shortfalls. One of the most memorable ones was age 20. I was returning home to the UK from Europe on a, on a plane having managed to almost ruin the course that I was on by partying too hard. I heard that still small voice of the Lord reassuring me through the tears that he would be with me. And he was right. He brought me to my senses. He took me on a path of repentance and discipleship. And through his love and Eleanor's unfailing love, led me through the waters of baptism. Friends, our shortfall is undeniable. Our need for a saviour, absolute. The wondrous gift of the law of God, as perfectly righteous as it is, was carefully designed by God to reveal our need for him. God did not leave us alone. But in the fullness of time he sent the Saviour, the long-promised Saviour, his uniquely begotten Son, Jesus. So once our shortfall has been revealed, then the wondrous thing about Scripture is that our Saviour is revealed too. The all-sufficient Saviour. The significance of the work of Christ in securing our salvation, in making justification for sinners possible, is the centrepiece of Paul's, uh, this section of Paul's letter. And so it is my second and the central point today. The great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. Our sin in all its Horrendous horror for Christ's perfect, spotless righteousness. The greatest swapsy ever announced in the history of humankind. Verse 26 tells us that God is both just, God is perfectly just, no sin escapes his righteous scrutiny and judgment, God is both just, holding all sin to account, and he is the justifier, the one who grants righteousness to those whose faith is in Jesus. God is at one and the same time perfectly just, holding all sin to account, and also the justifier, the one who gives freely his righteousness. How does that work? God holds all people accountable for their thoughts, words and actions and he justifies those with faith in Christ. 
How could he possibly accomplish that? Well, Paul gloriously explains for us. You see, it's all about Jesus. We often say, don't we, the answer to the pastor's question is Jesus. And it is. The the Bible's answer is Jesus. Yeshua. And in Hebrew, Jesus' name means salvation. Or we can say saviour. Back in the prophet Isaiah, including chapter 12 that we read at the outset of the service, there in, in Isaiah, the prophet declares in chapter 49, verse 6, that the whole world will see the Lord's Yeshua. The whole world, every nation will see the Lord's salvation. Does this mean that the whole world will be saved? Well, all the world that believes, all the world that through the precious gift of faith will believe in Jesus the Christ, they will be saved, yes. Is that fair? What about those who have faith in other religions? Well, friends, let me ask you this. What do those religions teach about God? Do they teach us about a personal relationship with a God of grace who knows us intimately and who personally redeems us from the pit by his self-sacrifice, his gracious self-sacrifice? You see, elsewhere, Paul makes it clear that, as he does here, that Jesus is the expression of God's redeeming love. Jesus is the one who perfectly and fully discloses God's righteous nature and character. If we don't have that disclosure, if we don't have that revelation, then we don't, friends, have salvation. It's not cruel. It's not unloving. It's not being uh, prejudiced to say that. It's simply being honest according to the revelation of God. Friend, it is only in Jesus that we can have our sins passed over. Verse 25. Because it was only Jesus who died for us. Only Jesus meets us in that place of our greatest need. At the mercy seat of God. Now what is that? The mercy seat, Pastor. Verse 25. Now, a more literal translation, and I'm going to turn to the ESV here for a more literal translation. Verse 25. End of verse 24. In Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's in whom we are justified. That's in whom we are saved. He was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now propitiation may sound like a complicated word to you. But it speaks of the atonement. The singular act of bringing a perfectly holy and righteous God to be one with sinful people. Atonement. At one meant. 
It's only possible in Jesus, friends. Satisfying the righteous wrath of God against sin. Remember, he's perfectly just. Every sin must be accounted for. Propitiation is the sacrificial aspiration. It's what the priest wants to achieve when the offering is made. When the blood of the sacrificial lamb is sprinkled on the mercy seat. In Greek, the mercy seat is hilasterion. It's the top cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? The box in which the law of God was contained. Those, those tablets given to Moses. They fashioned a box. They put those tablets in there. They kept that box, that precious special box that had uh, specifications in the Old Testament. Exactly how it was to be crafted. And crafted with angels guarding it. And then covered with gold. And then kept in the Holy of Holies. God said to his people, there on that mercy seat, that is where I will meet you. As the blood is sprinkled on it. Through the blood of the sacrifice, I will meet you there. Only there can you meet me. Only there can you stand before me. Back in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 22, God said, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of testimony, I will speak to you about all I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Friends, as we know from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, and chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the Old Testament sacrificial system never atoned for sin. Never, ever once atoned for sin. But pointed forward to the sacrifice that God himself would appoint to accomplish redemption for all God's people trusting in him. That whole system points to Jesus. That whole system says that one day the blood which can atone for your sin will be shed. Oh, glory be to God. Most high. <clears throat> Friends, saving faith is all about Jesus. And he is a great saviour. He has done all that's necessary for you to be declared righteous. Yeah, the idea is preposterous, isn't it, that any of us could be declared righteous? How could we be declared righteous? So presumptuous to think that we could possibly be declared righteous. Until you meet Jesus. Until you meet Christ. Perfect, spotless, loving Son of God. He has done all that's necessary for you to be declared righteous in that great divine courtroom when the books are opened on that great day when we all stand before him and we enter our plea what's it going to be friend well you know I used to look out for the elderly 
I never broke any of the Ten Commandments. Father God, my hands are empty. I stand here washed by the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus, alone. All that must happen is for you to repent of your sin, to turn away from a rebellious attitude and believe that Jesus' death at the cross has wiped your sins away as far as the east is from the west. Jesus declared at the cross, it is finished. And if you are here today, if you are his today, there is no more work that needs to be added to his finished work of salvation. It is fully, unmistakably and completely yours for all eternity. There is no shortfall with Jesus. He accomplishes complete and full salvation for every believer. When we look at Jesus, we see a perfect saviour. One who in every way pleases his father. One who in every way fulfills scripture's promises and prophecies. The one who has never let any one of his people fall from his kind hands. Have you come and surrendered to him? If you've surrendered to him, then you'll know that he is Lord. He is king. This brings me to my third point. His new statutes. As we've heard, there's no shortfall with Jesus. The great exchange, our sin for his righteousness, takes place at the cross. The place where God said that he would meet with us as the blood, as the blood is sprinkled in that divine holy of holies. So he will meet us there on account of the blood of Christ. Friends, Jesus is the key. Jesus is the righteousness of God. His sacrifice is the means by which we are saved. It's as simple as that. And so there are no grounds for boasting of any kind by the religious. Boasting is excluded, it says in verse 27. And what has now been fulfilled, the law, has been revealed for what it truly is. And actually, for the faithful remnant of God always was. The law of faith. Because the law calls for faith. Amen. The law convicts us all. Absolutely. On almost every count if we're honest, but it calls for faith. This law of faith does not negate or dismiss the law of God, but it understands and embraces it rightly, not as a means of salvation, but as the perfectly righteous and moral governance ethic of God. God desires humankind to flourish, and his law sets out a pattern for that to happen. The faith which alone accomplishes our salvation as a free gift from God works in us and through us. 
so that we come to accept and delight in God's law because it is God's and represents his will and his character. As Christians, as believers in Jesus, we will begin to comply with God's law instinctively since we are now new creations with the very Spirit of God living in us. Paul, as you know, in Romans will go on to expand on this later on, famously in chapter 8. But it's important for us to grasp that the Spirit of God does not deny his law. How can he? Since he is the very same one who inspired Moses to write it down in the first place. What the Spirit does is show us the beauty and righteousness of God's holy law. Some, uh, some today say that Jesus has freed us from the moral law of God. That grace not only frees us from the curse of God's law, which is death to sinners, but it also delivers us from any obligation to obey it. Grace becomes a license for disobedience. We sometimes hear people say things like, Christianity isn't a lot, to, a lot of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of rules. Friends, the truth is, Christianity is far more than a mere list of rules. At its centre, our faith is a living relationship with God the Saviour, Christ himself. But Christianity is not less than rules. Because Christ is a great king. He is a great ruler. And his rules, his commandments, founded on love. Love for him and for one another. They uphold his perfectly good and righteous moral, moral law. Jesus, when he came, made it abundantly clear that None of God's good and moral law has been abandoned. But rather it was fulfilled in him. He made it possible for us to love him and his law and to walk in it as he did. As a God-glorifying display that the world can never deny. As the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2 verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in closing, has God shown you your shortfall? Has he gifted you faith in his son, Jesus, to believe that his death has justified you. And do you now live for him, now as his friend, obeying all his commandments in love for him and for your brothers and sisters? Dear friends, let's come to Jesus without delay, because the days are drawing shorter. <laughs>